Um, so I want to, uh, we're basically going to stay with the book of Esther uh, for tonight. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about what the plan is for the next few weeks. Uh, the next couple of weeks we'll be looking outside of the book of Esther. But, uh, but for, tonight, for tonight all we really need is, uh, is Tanakh, the book of, of Esther itself. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, for this topic of insider, outsider, um, all the material that's being studied uh, for these evenings is from, is from Tanakh, uh, as opposed to the later Jewish literature. Uh, and I think that's worth thinking about. I'm not going to say much about it, but it's worth thinking about uh, the extent to which Tanakh really does uh, spend a lot of time uh, on topics about navigating, negotiating borders, boundaries, inside, outside, uh, identity, uh, forming an identity as opposed to other nations within the context of other nations. That's something that's uh, it's a major topic in Tanakh, a major theme uh, in many of the books of Tanakh. Whereas as we turn to later Jewish literature, uh, it uh, receives in significance, at least as an explicit, uh, as an explicit theme, um, and maybe there are historical reasons for that in terms of the identity of the Jewish people in post-biblical times. Uh, maybe it wasn't as pressing a need to carve out an identity, uh, at least for, uh, so for some of the circles producing some of the literature that we have. Uh, but it's also, uh, I think, a, a conscious choice that uh, Tanakh spends a lot of time, a lot of effort, uh, thinking about and dealing with raising and, uh, and uh, broaching the topics of identity in all sorts of interesting ways. So, for tonight, uh, we're going to stick with the Book of Esther, and I'm not trying to offer a, a uh, comprehensive reading of the Book of Esther. There's a lot about Esther that uh, I'm not even going to uh, touch on. Um, but uh, what I'd like to talk about is uh, really two intertwined issues, and that's the identities of the two main characters. Uh, and the identity of Mordecai and the identity of Esther. Um, before we actually get into it, I want to preface it with one... One claim that I'll make that, uh, that I think the rest of the, uh, the, rest of, the uh, of our time together will hopefully justify, maybe it seems intuitive anyway, um, but the claim is that, that for the readers, the, the author and the early readers of the book of Esther, uh, the characters were stand-ins for the people of Israel, for the Jews. Uh, in other words, in a sense, what we see the book doing with the characters of Mordecai and Esther, the way it explores the identities of Mordecai and Esther, uh, are not meant to be two figures randomly chosen out of the history of the Jews, but that these in some way, in some in different ways, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about differences between them, but in some way these two characters stand in for what it means to be a Jew, at least in the environment where Esther lives, which of course is diaspora. Uh, and that's a major uh, fundamental point to start with. Uh, of course the Jews in the book of Esther, and the author of Esther presumably, uh, are navigating identity in a more complex setting than, let's say, the author of the book of uh, Shmuel, or the author of the book of Malachim. Uh, because in Malachim, the Jews are in their own, in their own land. In uh, Shmuel, there's a king, there's uh, political issues, there are border battles, but there is a, uh, a monarchy, or at least a, uh, uh, the beginnings of a monarchy, and then a full-fledged monarchy uh, in Israel. Here we have characters who have to be Jews, or we'll talk more about the correct extent they're Jews, but they have to be Jews that function as Jews, uh, ripped out of their homeland, in a foreign land, where the powers that be are not Jewish. They're not necessarily opposed to Judaism, but they're certainly not, uh, they certainly don't care all that much about Judaism. This presents a whole set of, 
of challenges and problems, which earlier books in Tanakh don't set the stage for. I think that's a key, a key point in, in recognizing and appreciating what the author of Esther has to grapple with, uh, is that he can't look back to Nevi'im Rishonim, uh, or even most of the Nevi'im Akronim, for models for what it is that he wants to do. He needs to chart a more or less new path, uh, trying, to, trying to tell a Jewish story in the context of a non-Jewish diaspora. Um, so with that, let's, uh, let's jump right in. Um, and again, Paragolith is, uh, is an important paragraph, but we're going to pretty much skip over it right now and skip right to where there's two main characters are introduced. Uh, luckily, they're introduced pretty much together. Uh, what we'll do is first start with Mordecai, spend a few minutes talking about Mordecai's identity and character. Uh, he's introduced first. Uh, and then we'll come back to Esther and, uh, and reflect on her and see where, they, where their uh, characters are similar, where they're, where they're different. Um, so Mordechai is introduced in Perak Bed, in chapter 2, uh, in Pasuk Hay, this is on page 1787. And um, in the story, of course, we had chapter 1, which was a banquet, so uh, we'll mention it in a minute, but, uh, but um, had nothing to do with Jews, for, say that for the time being. The Jews are not mentioned in chapter 1. Uh, beginning in chapter 2, uh, also not a Jewish uh, part of the story, uh, the king remembers that he... Uh, got rid of his queen and he's a new one. Uh, and now, verse 5, we're introduced to the first Jew in the story. Um, so I guess I'm about to read Pasuk uh, K, 5 on uh, 1787. Alright, you know, why don't you go one more Pasuk? Okay, great. So that's actually the, the full introduction. Nothing actually happened to this person other than that he's existed. Uh, he doesn't do anything until the next verse. Even there, he doesn't actually do anything, uh, but he, we're told at least of some relationship that he has. Uh, but here we are, we are introduced to him, uh, and I think it's fair to assume that the way we're introduced to the character is, is, uh, is purposeful. That we're told something. We're told something, uh, uh, to use a word that Stu uh, used, a sal- some salient characteristics of the uh, of the character that are chosen uh, up front, say, you know, here's what this person is, here's what you need to know about them. Uh, obviously, there's a lot we're not told about Mordecai when we're introduced to him. If I ask you, for example, an elementary question, like how old he is, so what's your guess? Yeah, I mean, no idea. You could try to think through the story and, you know, well, does he have a family? We have no education in the family. He seems to be, we'll talk about that in a minute, he seems to be a bureaucrat, he's a McGee, professional, I don't know, I, you know, rough guess, I'd say 27. Uh, that's, my, uh, that's my guess. But, uh, but we're not told how old he is, uh, we're not told how tall he is, but we are told these things about some other characters in some stories, but only when it's relevant, it's only what we need to know. We need to know that is very tall, it's an important fact. Uh, we need to know that Shalom has long hair, it turns out to be a critically important fact. Uh, we need to know how old certain people are at different junctures in the narrative. For Mordecai, that's all irrelevant. What do we know about him? What are we told about him? What does the story actually spend its time telling us? Hmm? Okay, so it's uh, Mini, which means what? It's from Shevet Binyamin. From Shevet great. That's a really important point. Why do you think? Okay. Okay, next. Nice. So, Put that on hold for one second, we'll come right back to it. What's the first thing we're told about? 
the very first word is Yehudi. Is Yehudi. Now, what does Yehudi actually mean? Yeah, it sounds like it means from the tribe of Judah, right? And it's easy, easy to find examples in Tanakh, earlier in Tanakh, where that's exactly what Yehudi means. The Yehudi is, as you'd expect, someone from Yehuda, uh, much like all these other gentilic, all these other uh, ethnic terms. All you do is take the ethnicity, add an E at the end of it, and that's, what, uh, that's how you create a, an, an adjective. So Yehudi means from Yehuda. It seems reasonable. Um, but, uh, but in the Gilad there, it actually doesn't mean from Yehuda, right? And that's clear, first of all, from this introduction, because as you just told us, it turns out it's not from the tribe of Judah, right? It's actually from the tribe of Benjamin. The Talmud does ask, how could he be from both tribes? But, but this, the, I think, uh, universally agreed upon answer is he's not from the tribe of Judah. What does Yehudi mean in Esther, only in Esther? What does Yehudi mean? Yehuda was an administrative unit of the Persian Empire. So Yehud, Yehud was, that's true. Yehud was, that's true. So Yehudi might mean... From that, this is a Persian okay. He's a member of that. So okay, next. So here's, a, here's the other obvious suggestion, right? You say, well, maybe Yehudi doesn't mean the tribe of Judah. After all, the tribe of Judah, it's been 150, 200 years since there have been robust tribes in Israel. But at this time, there are Persian provinces. And one of those Persian provinces, centered around Jerusalem, is the province of Yehud in, uh, in Aramaic. So Yehudi would be someone from the Persian province of Yehud. Is that what it means here? Oh, it says that he was uh, carried away into exile with Yehudi, king of Yehud. Yeah, okay, well, uh, uh, so I actually think it means that his great-grandfather was carried away into exile. We'll come back to that in one second. But, but the key point is, where does he live? Right now, right now, he lives in Shusha. So he's not a Yehudi in that, in that sense either. He's not a resident of Yehud. He's actually a resident of Shusha. He has a good Babylonian name. He seems to be fully, fully acculturated in, uh, in Shusha. So he's not a Yehudi in the political he's sense. Not a Yehudi in the ethnic sense. Uh, what does Yehudi mean? Again, it's only in Esther. It seems so natural to us. What does Yehudi mean? Yeah. I, let's, let's be clear. Later in the Megillah, there's even a verb derived from Yehudi. Yeah, kol mehaaret mit yahadim. All the nations of the land are, what does mit yahadim mean? Becoming Jews. Become Jews. In other words, Yehudi in Esther means Jew, which of course what it means in modern Hebrew, uh, but not what it means anywhere else, not only not in Tanakh, but not in Chazal either. How do you say Jew in rabbinic literature? Israel. Israel, exactly. Uh, so this is not a natural evolution of the language where Yehudi came to mean Jew, because this is only true, actually, in the book of Esther, that the word Yehudi means, means Jew. It could be deduced that he was born in Babylon as well, because uh, Mordecai is trying to take off on Martin. Yeah, on yeah, that's a good point. So there is this uh, a technically a, a, sort of a syntactic question uh, in the Pasuk, when it says, um, let's see, how does it say it in English? Uh, the name of Mor- oh, sorry. Mordechai, son of Yair, son of Shimi, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been exiled from Jerusalem. So who's the, who had been exiled? Who had been exiled? So, sorry, I don't know your name. Uh, don't. don't assume that it was Mordechai who was exiled. Uh, but the translation here, what you're saying, is that actually it was probably his great-grandfather who was exiled. For historical reasons, that's actually almost certain. Akashverosh, uh, Xerxes, uh, rules more than a century after the Babylonian exile. So if Mordecai was exiled, he's now, you know, I don't know, 120 or so. Uh, he has a 
a first cousin who's this beautiful young virgin. There's a lot that doesn't cohere in the story. But if you assume that his great-grandfather was exiled, then that's perfect. Right? Analogy works out, and like you say, he's a fourth-generation Babylonian Jew. It explains his name, and explains why he doesn't seem to have any language problems, but we'll, uh, we'll see that he's, he's, not a, he's fully acculturated, but, but the Jewish part of his identity is still there as well. Um, okay, but he's, uh, he's a Yehudi, he's a Jew, and that's important. Uh, the author, again, the author is picking, the, almost making up this word Yehudi uh, for, uh, for Jew, but um, all right, let's, uh, let's, let him, let's let him use this word. Um, but it's, it's sorry, yeah. Maybe somebody practices faith. Maybe, maybe. Uh, yeah, so you're asking a question. You know, what is, is it, uh, how do you get to be a Yehudi? You, uh, well, you have to be born that way. We do find out later on in this book that you can become a Jew, uh, apparently just by acting like a Jew. So, you know, that certainly supports what you said. You practice like a Jew, look like a Jew, smell like a Jew, act like a Jew, <laughs> act like a Jew. So, it's got to be a Jew. Um, <laughs> Is the fact that the narrator has chosen to tell us up front and center, it's not an ethnic question. He is an Ish Yehudi. That's what you need to know. And that means, I'm not telling you by birth he is a descendant of someone who was exiled from Judah. That we'll find out in a second anyway. And that's not what the narrator wants to emphasize right now. He wants to emphasize this is a Yehudi by, by practice, by identity. He, he, uh, he fully identifies as a Yehudi. Now, within the story, again, that's actually pretty striking. Uh, for the simple reason that if I ask you, based on chapter one, um, how many peoples there were in the Persian Empire, uh, what's the impression you get from chapter one, with the party and the feasts and everything? There's 127 provinces. That's a political thing. Right? But how many identities are there? How many nationalities or ethnicities are there in the Persian Empire in chapter one? Just Persians, exactly. Everyone is Persian, right? So everyone comes to the party. All the, there are class differences, there are geographical differences, but in terms of ethnicity, there are Persians in this empire. That's what there are. No one singled out. I'm still showing There's a language, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but uh, but it doesn't say, it doesn't emphasize that the Arameans and the Babylonians and the Elamites, they all came to the party as well. You have this sort of political uh, overlay. There's 127 provinces, they all came. Under that, are there ethnic differences? Well, we all know there are. But up front in this story, what's, what's on top? There's only one identity that's important in this story. They're all Persians. And the, the, uh, the implication, or the, the reflex of that, is that the one action that they all do is show loyalty to the king. Everyone in the story comes to the capital to show loyalty to the king. It's, Right, well, that's, yeah, that's true. The Medians, uh, the Persians and Medians had merged uh, in the previous century. So you're right. It's sort of a complex. Austria Hungary. Austria Hungary. That's a good, good parallel, actually. Um, all right, so the most striking thing about, about the introduction of Mordecai might just be the fact that he has an ethnic identity. 
We might have gotten the impression until now that ethnic identities have basically been quashed by the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire sort of runs roughshod over ethnic identities and says, you're all Persians now. In comes Mordecai and says, well, not, not entirely. Here you have Ishihuti, who's a fourth generation Persian Babylonian. He's not. He's not someone who's sticking out like a sore thumb. Uh, his name is Mordecai. That's, uh, like you said, based on the Babylonian god Marduk. That doesn't mean anything about his religion, but it means he's taken on a, a Babylonian name. He's not, uh, doesn't seem to be, to be marked somehow as different than anyone else, but he's an Ishihuti. And so this identity, this, this issue of a complex identity, uh, starts to rear its head. So, well, okay, interesting. Yeah, maybe he's a Persian, maybe everyone's a Persian, but this guy's also, also a Yehudi. Um, now, let's get, let's get into the rest of the introduction. So he's, uh, he's Yehudi, fine. Uh, his lineage, his genealogy, uh, where does it place him in the Jewish people? Who does it align with? You already mentioned. Um, Benjamin and the house of Saul. Now, how do you know the house of Saul? What, what here is told, I mean, there are a lot of people in the tribe of Benjamin who are not from... It's true, he's also from Benjamin. But that's not enough to link the two, right? I mean, the tribe of Benjamin, that's not a huge tribe, but, but still. Uh, you can be from the tribe of Benjamin without being from the dynasty of Saul. What, what links him to the house of Saul? Kish. Kish. Who's Kish? Saul's father. Saul's father. Now, is this the same Kish? No, uh, it can't be. Right? It can't be. We're talking about a difference of about you know five six hundred years. Um, but uh, okay. But the name is there. What other name here should remind us of the house of Saul? Yeah, you're really totally possible, but I don't know why. Where is that? You're in, in Saul. I don't know. But what about the other one? Who's the other person here? Who's Shimi? Who's the other? There's only one other Shimi. Shimi Bengera. Who is Shimi Bengera? I don't remember. He's the guy who cursed David. Why he cursed David? Because he's Shaul's cousin, who's really annoyed at David for taking over the kingship. And as David is walking out of Jerusalem, because uh, his son kicked him out, uh, he's walking around cursing him or throwing rocks at him and disparaging him. Uh, so the, oh, another person from the household of Saul. Uh, now again, is the same Shimi? No, of course not. But these names are, are too familiar, and then you couple with the fact that from the, from the tribe of Benjamin, it's clearly, it's clearly wants you to think, Saul. I'm thinking about Saul. Uh, if, if we were really at the top of our game, and I, I was not uh, until I saw someone else who was point this out, uh, we might have also re- remembered that Saul is actually introduced with, very similar, uh, with a similar formula. If you flip very quickly back to page 587, when Saul's first introduced at the beginning of chapter 9 in Shmuel Alam, 1 Samuel, uh, his introduction is, uh, so there was a man, X, son of Y, son of Z, son of A, whatever, uh, and he had a son, and now Mordecai, of course, is introduced as there was a man, X, son of Y, son of Z, son of A, Ishimini, and skip one plus two, we're going to get to verse 7, which says he was raising a daughter. Um, and that's, uh, again, if we, you know, if I had been on top of the game, I, I, I like to think I would have noticed this, but I didn't. Um, but, uh, but the introduction of, of Mordecai does seem to be very, uh, very reminiscent of the introduction of Shaul as well, and also clues us into something else, because in the beginning of chapter 9, it's Keith who's introduced, but he's, of course, not the major character. Who's the main character in Samuel? In that introduction? 
Saul, his son, who's about to be named, when Mordechai is introduced in verse 5, this might lead us to, to the quick conclusion that actually he's not the important person. The important person is, verse 7, the person who he's raising as a child. Uh, so we'll turn to her in a few minutes, but uh, let's stick with, with Mordechai first. So, connection to Saul. To Saul. Alright, that's important. Uh, why would anyone want to be connected to Saul? Uh, what, what is Saul? If I ask you, you know, what's Saul? What's his legacy? So, what is his legacy? What do you say, Ben? Failure. Failure. He was uh, the first king, uh, sort of, and, uh, you know, pretty much. Uh, I don't know how short-lived, but relatively short-lived. No dynasty, right? His son didn't take over. Fails to some extent. And of course, taken over by... Who would have to take the kingdom after him? But David. Is it also like particularly foreshadowing the connection between he and Malik and Haman? Nice. Uh, for sure. For sure. I think that's a cri- critical point. I think one of the things that... The question, yeah, the question was, uh, was whether that this is just the beginning of a complex that's going to connect to the fact that Saul's major flaw, which is a major crime, was not wiping out on a lake. And Mordecai is heir to some extent, the person who's now taking over the mantle of Saul, is going to win the battle by defeating Haman, the Agagi, uh, the heir of Amalek. I think there's actually a huge amount uh, that's implicit in that. Um, and maybe one of the purposes of the story is to redeem Saul to some extent. Say, okay, it's true, Saul a long time ago failed, but here his descendants, the people who are taking the mantle of Saul, are going to finish a job that he never was able to finish. Also interesting that where is the, the whole commandment of killing Amalek, wiping out Amalek, uh, where is that supposed to be? Where is that supposed to take place? In Israel, right? It's explicit in, the, in, in Zvarim that when you get to Israel, you will meet Amalek and then go wipe them out. Uh, it's not finished in Israel. Where is the job completed? In Persia. So the Jews have to like, go to the diaspora to finish the job that they didn't finish in Persia, uh, in Israel. So there's, uh, I think, a lot to think about in that, uh, in that complex that uh, I'm going to not pursue now, but I think you're absolutely on to something really important. Also, Saul married David's daughter. David married Saul's daughter. And he gave married Saul's daughter. Right. Some kind of Right. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting point. Um, I, I'm going to throw something out, but I have no way of proving it. Uh, I think maybe the author of the, of the book of Esther wants you to think of Saul, not because he loves Saul. There's, really, uh, there's no Saul dynasty at this point. This is, you know, I don't know, 550 years after there's been any, any Saul dynasty, any Saul movement. Uh, Shaul is not a, a viable political option. Uh, but maybe what the author is doing is to, is to say something uh, a little more, more complex, more interesting. Say, you know, when you think about Shaul, you think about someone who, from whom the monarchy was stripped, who was the king and who lost the power. Let me tell you something about Jews in the Persian Empire. All Jews are in the position of the House of Saul. They're all people who had power and lost power. You don't have a monarchy anymore. Now, what if you say, but what we really need is a new monarchy and our hopes are for a Davidic dynasty? The author of the rest of it says, that's not what you have now. You are the heirs of Saul. And the heirs of Saul have to grapple with reality not being in the monarchy. You have to grapple with the reality of living powerless, at least in the overt sense. You're not going to be on the seat of power. Um, just like Saul had to deal with the loss of power, maybe all Jews have to deal with the loss of power. Uh, I think that's a promising line of, uh, of, of thought, but um, let's put it aside for now and, and move back to Mordecai himself and see what, what else we find about him. Again, we'll come back to Esther in a few minutes. 
let's go on with, uh, with Mordecai. So the story actually turns to Esther for, for a little bit. Gloss over for us right now. Uh, and skip to the end, towards the end of chapter 2. In uh, verse 19, uh, we finally get back to Mordecai. Mordechai is sitting at the gate of the king, the royal gate. Now, what does that mean to sit at the royal gate? That actually, seems, that seems to be a, uh, more than just a, a physical location. Uh, if that were a physical location, you have to ask, you know, what he did for a living and how it is that he manages to just sit at the city gate all day, uh, the king's gate, and still have food. Um, to sit at the, at the king's gate, uh, shows up in the book of Daniel also, to sit at the gate is to be a member of the bureaucracy. At the very end of uh, chapter 2 in Daniel, it says, Daniel was in the gate of the king. Uh, and from the context there, it's right after he's appointed governor by the king. To be in the gate of the king seems to mean, seems to, mean to be employed by the bureaucracy. What's his, what is Mordecai's specific job? I have no, no idea. Uh, he's part of the bureaucracy. but. But much of Shushan seems to be part of the bureaucracy. This is a capital city. Um, the, the, a vast, uh, vast percentage of the population in Shushan Habira, the fortress of Shushan, was employed in the royal bureaucracy. This is a massive bureaucracy. Uh, and Mordecai had some job there. Uh, some people have speculated that maybe he was in the intelligence services. Uh, this is not, not groundless. What's the one thing we know that he's about to do in chapter 2? He discovers a plot to assassinate the king. Maybe that's not because, as you know, because he was sitting and he overheard the story in the next column. Maybe it's because it's his job to discover plots. Um, so you know, it's possible, but it doesn't really matter for our purposes. For our purposes, what's important is that he he's a royal employee. Yeah, I was just saying he had like recognition. He was somebody. Yeah, he is somebody. That's a that's a good way of saying it, right? So he's to some extent, if we're thinking think about identity questions, is insight. He works for the king. How much more Persian can you get than working for the king of Persia? Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, you think about the phrase Yoshev Bashar Hamelach. He's sitting at the gate of the king. Um, that actually, doesn't. That's not the best way of saying he's an insider, right? What does it actually seem like to sit at the gate? It's a war. It's a war. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to go. Be a war. Right. Then. then He's, he's a social climber that uh, he's, he's trying to break in. So you're saying more than I'd be willing to say, but I think you're, you're assuming what, what it is that, uh, that I think we have in mind, is that he's somewhere on the cusp, right? He's uh, sort of liminal. He's on the border. He's an insider, he's employed, but he's not, he's not the... Uh, you know. He's not really an insider. He's not really an insider. Is he an outsider? No, he's not really an outsider. Uh, what? He's not in the inner circle, right? We had in chapter one the seven people who see the face of the king. He's not one of the people who see the face of the king. Um, he's certainly not an outsider. So I don't know what his aspirations are, but he's sort of a border figure. The gate keeps you outside. It's also access. So he's right on that border, right? Uh, now, again, I don't mean that uh, in terms of how he feels. Does he feel like he's on the border? I don't know. Maybe he's perfectly content where he is. It's exactly where he likes to be. But, uh, but I think the phrase, to sit at the gate of the king, does give you the impression of someone who's certainly not an outsider. He's not distant. He's not living somewhere else. He's not exactly inside either. He's right at that border. Somewhat inside, somewhat outside. Maybe it could go, could go either way. Now, if that's, if that's our first impression of him, that he's someone sort of on the border, 
the very next anecdote, which is a very short story at the end of chapter 2, uh, tells us where his loyalties are. So what, did he, what does he do? What's the first thing that he actually does? He just mentioned the story. What does he have to do at the end of chapter 2? What? He saves the life of the king. Right? He, he discovers a treasonous plot, uh, whatever it was exactly, and, and saves the life of the king. So, so where are his loyalties? Well, we have, we have no doubt at this point, right? See, inside, he's, not, he's clearly clearly loyal to the king of Persia. It's not just a way of making money. This is where he's loyal. He just saved the life of the king. He's not someone who's, who's at the gate, but in some seditious way. No, he's at the gate, and he's helping the king. That's where his loyalties, that's where his loyalties are. So that seems to be our first impression of him. He's, uh, he's an Ishihudi. We're told up front he's an Ishihudi. He's a Sheh Bashar Melach, and that means that he also has loyalties to the king, and those loyalties seem to run run deep. They're not just a way of picking up a paycheck, but he, he really protects the king. Our one, our one anecdote, our one story about him is that he actually literally saved the life of the king. That's, uh, yeah, how, how much more loyal could you be, could you be than that? Um, and yet, in the next, next chapter, uh, there's a very interesting reversal here, because literally right after Mordecai saves the life of the king, we read, sometime afterwards, King Ahasuerus promoted... And of course, who should the end of that sentence be? Who should the object be? Mordecai, obviously. I mean, we literally just read that Mordecai saved the life of the king. Sometime later, the king promoted, obviously it should be Mordecai, and yet it's this unknown character, Haman, who takes the place of Mordecai. And that's the first of what's going to turn out to be a whole series of times where Haman takes Mordecai's place, Mordecai takes Haman's place, goes back and forth, back and forth. Uh, there's, there's more to this particular example as well, but, but certainly that's the first reversal. Haman's someone we've never heard of. All we know right now is that he took Mordecai's place. So I've heard suggestions two different explanations. Maybe that's why he didn't bow. Maybe that's why Mordecai didn't bow. Either it was a personal vendetta that he was jealous that he got the promotion that Haman got the promotion he was supposed to get, or that he already proved his loyalty to the king by saying his life. So what does he need to bow to the king and say, Yeah, so, okay, so good introduction to the, to, the, to the next point, right? So Haman gets promoted, and we're told that everyone has to, has to bow. Well, to be precise, who exactly has to bow in verse 2? All the king's courtiers in the palace gate knelt and bowed low to Haman, for such was the king's order concerning him. But Mordechai would not kneel or bow low. So Mordechai won't bow. Okay, so old, yeah, very old, probably the oldest story, question about the story is why, why won't Mordechai bow? Why? It, would have, it would have solved so many problems, he would have just bowed. Uh, it doesn't seem to create any problems to bow. There's nothing... Uh, there's nothing wrong with bowing. You know, all the medieval commentators point out uh, people in the Bible bow to each other all the time. Uh, they bow to foreigners. They bow to each other. There's nothing wrong with bowing to another human as a sign of respect. We're not talking about idolatry here. Why can't you just bow down to Haman? And then you don't have to get yourself into genocidal trouble. Um, that's, that's something that uh, you know, Mordechai never, never apologizes for. He never says, like, if I'd only known, <laughs> um, then maybe I just would have bowed. I don't know. But, uh, but he doesn't bow. I, I don't know why he won't bow. I can't fully answer it. But we have one important, important clue. And that's in verse 4. Because the other, the other servants of the king say to him, Why do you disobey the king's order? And when they spoke to him day after day, and this is an allusion to the Joseph story that we're not going to pursue here, but he wouldn't listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether his excuse would hang up, would hold up, because he had explained to them that he was a Jew. So whatever we say his explanation was, that has to have something to do with the fact that he's Jewish. 
It can't be what Stu just said before he uh, scooted out. Uh, it can't be that he had a personal vendetta. He says, at least, that it has something to do with the fact that he's Jewish. Some reason, the fact that he's Jewish prevents him from bowing down to Haman. Okay. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, again, whatever, however we fill in the details, however, however it is that being a Jew prevents him from bowing down to Haman, uh, Mordechai has here made a really important point, a really important claim. He said, look, I'm an issue D. I've until now been loyal to the king, despite my being a UD. But at this point, this point, I have to draw a line. Here, I have to make a very important decision. And here, I'm going to stop being loyal to the king. Right? It's not just a question of Haman. The king has commanded to bow down to the to Haman. Mordechai says, I won't. I can't be loyal to the king to this point because this violates my other identity. Right? Something about, because he told them that he was a Jew. And at this point, Mordechai seems to have made the decision that when this particular concept arose, he had to choose to either be loyal to his Jewish identity or to be loyal to his Persian identity. Now he has to for, forsake his Persian loyalties and pursue the Jewish loyalties. And that becomes a, a, a very dramatic uh, action for him. Uh, what, does he, what does he do uh, right, after the, right after the decree that Haman, the genocidal decree? What does Mordechai actually do? What does he change into? His clothes, remember? Sackcloth. And what are we told about the sackcloth? Down in, uh, all the way in chapter 4, um, chapter 4, verse 2, at the beginning of the chapter. You put on the sackcloth, and where does he come to? Where does he, where does he walk to? To the gate. Well, that's where he's at home, right? This is where he lives. But what are we told now about the gate? Is it a place of access? What are we told about the gate in verse 2 here? He can't enter that gate anymore. Right? He used to be someone who lived at this gate. He used to be an insider outsider. He was a Persian. He was a Jew. It was no problem at all. At this point, though, he's, he's donned his, sack, his sackcloth. He's put on his sackcloth and said, I am, I am a Jew now. I am fully a Jew now, and therefore, I can't go into the gate anymore. The gate, which used to be partially a place of access, partially a place of being on the outside, is now fully a place of blocking his access. This is the line through which he cannot cross, beyond which he cannot go. He has now said, I'm, I'm not going to be loyal to the king, I'm going to be loyal to the Jews, which means that gate is my limit. I can't go to that palace anymore. That used to be my, my half of my identity, but no longer. Now I'm wearing sackcloth, and, uh, and I can't go any further. What can we take it the way it's written? He's just not allowed to go. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what I mean. Exactly what I mean. Oh, I don't mean that to the, I don't mean that as a, to the exclusion of the literal meaning. Absolutely. He literally cannot go into the gate. But symbolically, not metaphorically, symbolically, this is someone who, who always was at the gate. This is exactly where he lives. And he's now done something which he didn't have to do. No one told him to put on sackcloth. He has decided to do something which is going to bar his access to this place. So, 100%. He literally cannot go into the gate, which is important for the story. Uh, he can't go to Esther. Uh, but he's opted to do that. He's opted to do something which is going to preclude his access to the gate. He is, he is uh, for himself, said, I can't go there anymore. Right? Again, it's something that he did to himself. He put on the clothes that say, now I can't go further. Um, so, in other words, he's thrown his lot in you know, explicitly and overtly with the Jews in conflict with the Persians. Now, was he aware that it we're told very little here. I mean, we're not told whether the guards are standing there with their spears saying, hey, you can't go any further, you're wearing sackcloth. But he just knows. 
or he's just not going in. Uh, if he literally used to have an office here, then he probably knows the rules. But uh, I don't know. We're, we're told very little, yeah. which I think uh, which I think makes the point that the the, uh, the lack of access to the gate is more is important for the plot, but it's more important in terms of who he's chosen to be with now. He's chosen to be on the outside of the palace with the rest of the Jews, not on the inside with the king. Um, now, just to, to remind ourselves to go back, had he really been an outsider, let's say he had lived in, I could say Jerusalem, but you could say anywhere else in the entire Persian Empire other than at the gate of the king, had he lived anywhere else, there wouldn't have been a problem to begin with. Because the only people that had to bow down to Haman were the people at the gate of the king. So the whole problem is sparked because he has this, this border identity. Because he's at the border. Because he's an insider-outsider. He's Jewish, Jewish, but at the gate. He's loyal to the king, but also trying to be Jewish. That's what prevents, presents the problem. When the problem is presented, he throws in his lot with the Jews and, and uh, says, okay, I'm not going to the, to the palace anymore. But if he had just said he wanted to be with the Jews to begin with, there would be no, no problem. There would be no story also. Uh, but there would be no problem. The only people who had to show their loyalty to Haman were the people who were at the gate, were the people who were on, on the border. Okay, so, of course, the story of Mordecai is going to continue, and we'll, we'll pick it up uh, in a little bit. But let's go back a little bit now and, uh, and turn to Esther and uh, pick up her story, um, and then we'll uh, hopefully uh, be able to compare and contrast the two of them. So let's go... Yeah, please. Is there any indication? That's a good question. There's no indication either way. I mean, the notice is only is only after. That would be interesting. Like, yeah. The reason why it's there is not because it's border, but it's there. Right. Right. Well, it's certainly true, and there's certainly uh, midrashim that actually make that a, that he is there specifically in order to gain access to visiting Esther. Um, I don't think there's anything that has to indicate either way. So, yeah, if we if we had reason to think that he took the job because he wanted to be near Esther. That's perfectly reasonable. Uh, we also have no indication. Remember this. Backtrack for one second. There's five years uh, that pass unmentioned between when Esther becomes queen and when Haman uh, has his decree to kill the Jews. During those five years, we have no knowledge of whether Esther and Mordechai are talking, whether they're in communication. We know nothing about it at all. So, you know, if, if they're really not in, even in touch, that sort of weakens the the reason to think that, um, that he would have taken the job to be near Esther, but it might be that they were talking every day. We really just have no information. Just in verse 11, Sure, absolutely. When she's, when she's new there, he's certainly caring for her. Um, but yeah, but it's a, it's a really open-ended question, which uh, I don't know how to answer. But to follow any thoughts, perhaps the bus that you quoted just before, by a little ad lib name, I would have written the quotes. Hmm. Nay, Sharmos, perhaps because he wants people within. He's in front of the Sharmos, to be aware of I think that's true. I think, I think it's pretty clear that the, his actions at the beginning of chapter 4 there are to some extent choreographed. Uh, meaning, this is not a spontaneous act where he heard the decree, he ran home, spontaneously put on his sackcloth, and ran to the gate because that's the only place he knows where to go. Uh, clearly, he's doing this in order to elicit a response, uh, maybe from the other people at the gate, perhaps, but certainly from Esther. I think that's certainly, that's certainly true. Uh, so I think you're probably right, that he's facing the gate, 
maybe making, uh, making the point that I, I can't go in there anymore, but I want you to see me. I think that's a nice, uh, nice point. We'll see that again in a few minutes or in a week. Um, maybe this is more relevant for later, but my question on that whole story is people report to Esther immediately. Yeah. Oh, this guy Mordecai. Everyone knows there's some sort of connection yeah. between Esther and Mordecai. Well, and people yeah. don't know that Esther's Jewish. Mordecai's identity as a Jew is kind of questionable. Like, people at a certain point definitely know he's Jewish. Did he pretend that he wasn't Jewish up until the bounding down for Hamas Day? Or like, and how I think that's actually a great. I think that's actually a really great question. And what you just said—that that possibility you just raised—is—it's a promising, promising line of thought. In other words, when he doesn't bow down to Hamas, he tells all his coworkers that it's because he's Jewish. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean he's telling them something new about the Jewish religion that you didn't? You, you all knew I kept kosher, but you didn't know that it also meant I couldn't bow down to royal official or whatever this rule is. Uh, or does it mean that you might not have known I actually am Jewish? Um, as you know, Jews don't bow down to, to people or whatever it is. Um, but it was never relevant until now. Right. Until now, maybe he just didn't have to. It's not that he was hiding it. I don't think you have to think of him as a Murano or anything. Why would they know he was Jewish? Uh, he had a beard, but all persons had beards. So you know, what's the big deal? He had a beard. Um, I, what else? You know, they're off on the weekends. I, you know, how would they know that he was Jewish? So maybe until now he hadn't made a big deal about it. Now that certainly dramatizes even more his move right now to say, to say you know, until now I sort of not talked about it because it wasn't relevant to my identity, to my public identity. Now, let me tell you something that's, uh, that I've actually, you know, has always been near and dear to me, but I've never actually talked about. I am a Jew and I'm proud, you know, proudly defiant Jew at this point. So does that put Esther in danger? He thought that it'd be dangerous so, okay, so, Jewish. So hold that off for a minute, or a little bit, because uh, we, we have to think a little bit about what Esther's identity was, and then I think you're right, because I think Mordecai is challenging Esther um, maybe to follow his lead or to do something like that, but certainly to act somehow uh, with regard to her identity. Yeah, definitely, right? Yeah, I think, uh, Hans Hans points out that maybe it's a story about assimilation as Jews reclaiming their Jewish identity in the sense that neither Esther nor Mordecai are identifiably Jewish by anyone to the naked eye, and their names are Babylonian names, both of them. So it could be that they're, you know, that that's sort of part of the way to read the book, is that here are two ineffective assimilated Jews who then, through when faced with this crisis, reclaim their national identity. Yes, I think that's great. I think what we're going to try to see uh, in the remaining few minutes now and then next week is that the two characters do that in different ways, though. So Mordecai really... No, overtly says, I am a Jew, and we're going to you know, come back to it. But what's he called in the whole second half of the book? Mordechai HaYehudi. He's Mordechai the Jew. Openly, overtly. Uh, what's Esther at the end of the book? Queen Esther. Where does she live? In the palace. Married to the Persian king. So maybe there's some reclaiming going on, but hers is certainly more complicated than his. Uh, but let's, let's start with her uh, at the beginning before we can talk about her reclaiming her identity. Um, with her, the, the place to start is her name. So we could flip back to, uh, to Bet Zion, to 2-7, bottom of 1787. But what is her actual name? Hadatha. Hadatha. Her father's name? We're told later on. Told uh, both at the end, in, chap- in verse 15 in chapter 2, and then later on as well. Abichayel. Abichayel. So Hadassah bat Abichayel. Now, talk about Marduk, Esther. Esther is either from the god, goddess Ishtar, or maybe more plausibly from the Persian word for star, uh, Stara. 
Um, but whatever it is, it's not a Jewish name. Um, but what about Hadassah Bat Abichai? Uh, I mean, this is as, as Hebrew a name as you can get. Um, it's, it's actually Hebrew. It's not Babylonian at all. Um, both her father's name and her own name uh, are, are good Hebrew names. Uh, clearly Jewish names. And yet, that's, that's important only uh, in, the, in the absence. Because what we're about to find out, her name is Hadassah Bat Abichai, but, but actually we never hear the name Hadassah again for the rest of the book. Uh, she has this name that's never used. Now, there are a lot of characters in Tanakh who have Jewish names and then foreign names. Uh, what are some other examples? Who's given another name? Is someone who has a Jewish name? Okay, Tzofna Paneach, right? Yosef, Joseph, is also given the name Tzofna Paneach by, by Pharaoh. Tzofna Paneach, presumably some sort of Egyptian name that, uh, unfortunately, we haven't decoded yet. But um, what's he actually called in the rest of the story? Joseph, correct. No one ever calls himself Nepanea. Right, you have to imagine that people did call himself Nepanea, but not in the narrative. The narrative calls him Joseph. Who else has double names? Um, okay, that's true. So some people have names that are changed uh, from one to the other by God, not from one language to another. Right, so I guess I, I should have been more a more specific question. Uh, someone who has a Hebrew name and is then given a foreign name. Moshe uh, is an interesting one. Moshe is an interesting one, but. Uh, Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. Yochavid and Miriam might be shit from... Maybe, maybe. That one's obviously, you know, based on the identity that's unknown. But the best best and most and closest parallels are from the book of Daniel. Closest because it's a book that comes from basically the same time. Same basic uh, basic culture. I'm talking about the Jews in the Babylonian exile. Um, So Daniel is given, uh, given a new name. But what's he called for the rest of the book? Daniel. He's called Daniel. Uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are all given new names by the king in the beginning of the book of Daniel, and they're all called Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah for the rest of the book. In other words, all these other characters have their Hebrew names, their Jewish names, and then they have their foreign names, but the narrator continues to call them by their Jewish names. Only Esther is stripped of her Jewish name. She, we're told that her name is Hadassah, but it turns out that for the sake of the plot, we didn't need to know that. It makes absolutely no difference that her name was Hadassah. We'll never hear that name again. So what is the function of being told that her name is Hadassah then? Well, that's true. We know she was Jewish. We would have figured it out. Like I said, we would have figured it out because her father was Mordechai's father's brother. Uh, but, um, but yeah, what does it do for our understanding of her? Maybe she's a Parallel to what Yeah, I mean the function of the name Hadassah is to lose it very quickly, right? I mean we're told that her name is Hadassah, and then we realize that she doesn't use that name, and we wonder is that indicative of that identity, right? If Hadassah represents her Jewish identity then we realize that actually she operates on a totally different identity for the rest of the story. And it never comes back. Right? There's no like, happy ending where she uh, reclaims the name Hadassah, but there is something very tantalizingly uh, along those lines, all the way at the very, at the very end. Um, let's see. In uh, the last page, on page 1801, the very end of chapter 9... Uh, we got a fascinating, a fascinating line in verse 29. Uh, who writes the letter of Purim, the second letter of Purim? Who writes it? 
Queen Esther, daughter of Avichayel. Queen Esther, daughter of Avichayel, writes the letter of Purim to whom? To the Jews. Together with Mordechai the Jew. Now, Queen Esther, daughter of Avichayel. Now, this is the first, the, the first time we've heard her father's name since back in chapter 2. You would have been forgiven for thinking that she had totally forgotten her father's name. Uh, because it has nothing to do with her identity anymore. She's not Hadassah about Avichayel anymore, uh, who uh, you know, grew up in Borough Park. Now she's Queen Esther. She lives in Shushan. She lives in the palace. She doesn't remember Avichayel. Avichayel is her dead father who you know, didn't even bring her into, into uh, her success that she's now enjoyed. Mordechai, maybe, but, but uh, who's Avichayel? But at the very end, she doesn't go back to being Hadassah about Avichayel. She has this incredibly complex hybrid identity. Queen Esther, daughter of Avichayel. She's the queen. Queen of Persia. Her name is Esther. Persian name. But she's still daughter of Abishael, writing a letter about a Jewish holiday to the Jews, functioning in what sort of leadership role here? Leader of who? Leader of the Jews. She's not queen of Persia in writing this letter. She's, she's the partner of Mordecai instituting a new Jewish holiday. What do you do with the, part, the first time that her father's name is mentioned? She's not called Hadassah there. She's called Esther Hadassah. Right. So how is it just different in the fact that now she's the queen and yeah, exactly. I mean, the beginning, the first time is mentioned is, is she hasn't even gone to the palace yet. She's about to go in. Right. She's already called Esther. Oh yeah, I, I made up a story once about how she got the name Esther. Uh, uh, basically, when she moved in with her older cousin Mordechai, who lived in the big city, and she moved from her small Jewish town where her parents had unfortunately died in an accident, Mordechai told her that in order to be successful in the big city, you have to personalize your name. So she he gave her the name Esther. It's a longer story, but it doesn't matter for now. Um, but, uh, but the name is really significant. Uh, in, uh, in Tony Morrison's Beloved, uh, the baby Beloved, who, of course, that's not her real name, but she's never called by her real name. She's only called Beloved, uh, says towards the end, I want you to touch me on my inside part and call me by my name. Uh, that's a great line. Uh, Hadassah is never called by her real name, uh, which might raise the question of whether she really ever touched on her inside part, meaning what's below the, the, uh, the veneer of her identity? She's queen after queen of Persia. It's great. What's behind that? How much of her Jewish identity is actually being carried around with her? Uh, or has she really eviscerated the Jewish identity, the Hadassah identity, and really just garbed herself as Esther, queen of Persia, and put everything else behind her? Uh, by the end of the story, obviously we know something of, uh, of how she has resolved this. Uh, the real... The real uh, drama in the story comes earlier on, in chapters 2 and then especially in chapter 4. Um, but, uh, but I think we'll have to we'll leave that for, uh, for next week. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll put it aside for now. We'll not get into the, uh, into the real drama in chapter 4. Uh, but next week we'll start with that, try to work through the complexities of Esther's identity, and then, uh, and then pursue uh, not just the rest of the story, but what we're going to pursue over the next couple of weeks is how other Jews in Second Temple times reacted to the book of Esther. Because these identity politics are so critical to understanding the book uh, that all of the contemporary Jews and the later Jews in the following centuries, they understood exactly what the Book of Esther was trying to do, and they responded to it. So what we'll try to do over the next few weeks is to see what claims the Book of Esther is staking out, and then how other Jews reacted uh, to, these, uh, to the claims that the book is making. Thank you very much for your participation, and see you next week.